0: Would you go with me to Hebrews chapter 2, the New Testament book of Hebrews, in chapter 2. As you turn there, let me ask you, have you ever, have you ever been known to be impatient about anything? Not you, right? None of you have been impatient about anything. Well, let me, let me give you some perspective. Have you ever purchased one of those pieces of furniture that comes in a flat box? You know those you, you go to the store and you see this box or you see the piece of furniture on the shelf, that's even worse. You see the you see the piece of furniture on the shelf and you go, That's nice. I want that. I want that. Let's see, how do I how do I get that? And you look around and you find on the shelf a box that's about that thick. Right? And there's a picture of that piece of furniture that's on the shelf, the beautiful picture on the box, and you you say, Well, okay, I, I want that piece of furniture. I I'll buy that piece of furniture in the box. you get the box home, and you open the box, and, uh uh-huh. That's not a piece of furniture. That's a pile of wood, right? Pile of... That's not even wood, is it? I remember purchasing a baby crib one time that way. Get that baby crib home in the box. Open the box... Take out the instructions, begin to read, take out each piece as I follow the instructions, put the baby crib together. I think it took several hours. I'm kind of slow that way. It's usually I get, you know, half done or three quarters done and it's like, oh, I forgot that piece. And I have to take it all apart and put that piece back, you know. I get done after several hours. I'm finally done. I'm so happy to be done. And I look down the hallway at the bedroom, the baby's bedroom where the crib goes. It's like I can't get that in there. I gotta take it apart. So I take the crib apart. I don't have to take it completely apart, but enough that it's pretty frustrating. I take it apart. I put it put it in the baby's room and put it back together. By that time, I'm skilled laborer at this, right? I could I could I could hire myself out to assemble baby cribs. Learning the hard way, of course. Impatient. That was me. in such a hurry, so impatient to get that crib put together and to do it as easily as possible that I did did it in the living room where there was plenty of room to work. Unfortunately, my wife didn't want the baby crib in the living room. You know, when you buy one of those pieces of furniture in a box, the picture on the box looks great, doesn't it? You say, that's the the piece of furniture I I want. I like that. I want that. It looks great. It, it, It holds great promise, the picture on the box, right? But things aren't yet what they're supposed to be, are they? And you realize that when you open the box and you see all these pieces that look nothing like the picture on the box. Things are not quite yet what they're supposed to be. You realize that when you look at the world around you, it's the same. You realize that when you look at the world around you, things are not quite what they're supposed to be. We're seeing a world that's not the way God intended it to be. And the writer of Hebrews points that out, and we're going to see that this morning as we look at Hebrews chapter 2. I sent you to chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 5 this morning as we continue our series of studies through the book of Hebrews. Not only does the writer point to the problem, he points to the one and only God-given solution. Because God doesn't just tell us about our problems, thank the Lord, right? He also tells us about the one and only solution. I want you to look at it with me. Look at verses 5 through 9 in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5 where it says, the writer of Hebrews says, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while, lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And verse 9 says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, when we get to verse five, we're introduced to a problem which the writer needs to address. Some would hear what the writer of Hebrews had declared in chapter 1. You remember what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 1? It's it's all about how the Lord Jesus Christ is better than everyone and everything, but specifically the writer goes into detail about how Jesus is better than the angels. But the problem is, for some Some would think about angels, and we tend to do this too. I think some would think about angels and think, "What? Wait a minute! Angels are mighty and powerful, and I mean, they're a spirit. They go wherever they want. They do whatever they do. They do whatever they want to do. They might think that. So that should make that makes angels better than Jesus because because angels are spirits and they go and do whatever they want, but Jesus had a body and Jesus was crucified and Jesus died. And so, some would think, that makes angels better than Jesus. And so the writers addressing that problem, we saw it in chapter 1, angels... Are not better than Jesus. Why? Because, as the writer makes clear in Hebrews chapter 1, angels worship and serve Jesus. You see, you see, see, Jesus is the creator. Angels created beings. The Lord Jesus Christ, not created, okay? God showing himself in human flesh, that's Jesus. Jesus was there at creation. We saw it in chapter one. Angels worship and serve Jesus. They are ministering spirits and they don't do whatever they want. Okay? Don't misunderstand the role of angels because uh, chapter one helps us with this. Angels don't fly around doing whatever they want, they serve at the instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are ministering spirits sent to minister to those who would inherit eternal life. Who's that? Believers, right? Saints. They serve Jesus. They worship Jesus. So by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer goes back to God's created order and he points out that it wasn't to the angels that God subjected to the world. In fact, it was to mankind. It was to mankind that God subjected the world. And you look around and you say, that's not right. Oh, well, yes, it is. <laughs> it's not what you're seeing right now. The picture on the box tells you something else, right? The Bible is telling us something else. The Bible, you go back to creation, you go back to Genesis, and you find out that the way God created things was, was that all things would be in subjection to mankind. But now you open the box and you look around and you say, but that's not right. I can't control the weather <laughs> because if we could, right? We wouldn't be shoveling snow. <clears throat> and if we could control f- nature and the things around us, we wouldn't have had water problems this past couple of weeks, right? And we wouldn't have come last Sunday and and have keys stick on the piano, right? And things like that. We wouldn't have flat tires. We wouldn't have things that break down. We wouldn't have illnesses. But things are not the way they're supposed to be, right? So we look at the way things are, and we say, this isn't This isn't right. How can that be? How can it be that, that the world and the created order is to, be, is to be in subjection to mankind? Well, that's the way God created it. That's the way he intended it to be. Not only that, but the Lord Jesus Christ, as the... One who is the one who is better than the angels. The very fact that he he had to take on human flesh actually proves that he is better than the angels. God taking on flesh, something angels cannot do, and further dying and rising from the dead, something angels cannot do. Angels are not better than Jesus, and that's clear in the gospel when you understand that Jesus became a man so that he could be the sacrifice for sins. Praise God. As verse 9 says here, go back and look at verse 9, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Why did Jesus need to taste death for everyone? Because things are out of order. Because things are not the way they're supposed to be. Because things are not the way God intended them to be. So the writer is making this clear, as we can see here in verses 5 through 8, and what we have at the beginning in verse of verse 6 is a reference to to a passage from Psalm 8 and it's interesting that the writer says in verse 6 did you notice this where it says it has been testified somewhere <laughs> it has been testified somewhere and you're thinking well the, the writer must have lost that reference like we do sometimes we say well I know it's in the New Testament somewhere that's not what he's saying okay the writer is not like oh, I know I know I've heard this somewhere and I just can't re- remember where it is. I can't place it. No, no. That's not what the writer is saying. It's not like he can't remember where the passage comes from. Think about this. It's it's that he doesn't want to draw attention to the one who wrote it. He wants to keep the attention on Jesus Christ. Okay, so he says this is kind of subtle, don't worry about who wrote it. The, don't, don't worry about the human hand that penned what God told him to write. Remember Jesus, because we see Jesus here, okay? What we have at the beginning of verse 6 is a reference to this passage from Psalm 8. And so look at it again in verse 6. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection, Under his feet. Now, don't get distracted by this, but think about who the writer was. Okay, the writer was likely David. And if you can imagine David going out into the great, you know, the dark, vast, star filled night sky, looking up and being overwhelmed with how small he was and how great God is. And by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says this, What is man? That that you are mindful of him, or the Son of Man, that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. David, overwhelmed by the fact that God would choose to include little old mankind, In his plans for the universe, making mankind for a little while lower than the angels. Now what does that mean, a little while lower than the angels? Warren Wearsby explains when he says, God made man a little lower than the angels for, literally, for a little while lower than God. The suggestion seems to be that Adam and Eve were in a period of probation. They were not created to remain less than God. And had they refused to sin, they would have ultimately shared God's glory in a wonderful way. Satan knew that they would be lower than, than God only for a little while. So he hurried and promised them glory ahead of time. Sin came into the human race and robbed Adam of his earthly dominion. He ceased being a king and became a slave. That is why verse 8 says, and look at verse 8 again, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And that's why when you look around at the world that you live in, you realize that, that things in this world are not quite right. You see it? when you watch the news, don't you? You see it when you read the paper, if you still do that, or you read news on the Internet, if you do it that way. You see it when you get a bad report from your doctor, one you didn't want. (laughs) You never want a bad report from your doctor, do you? You see it when you find out a family member is having marriage problems. You see it when you learn of a dear friend whose child is in serious trouble with the law. You look around at the world you live in and say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Things aren't quite right, and it's not. Things are not right. In fact, God intended for things to be the way they were in the Garden of Eden. It was there we see how things were meant to be, the way God made them. Everything was perfect there. God had given man dominion over the earth. God had made man to rule over it all. We hear this in Genesis chapter 1. Listen to verses 27 and 28. Subdue it. But then Adam sinned. And we look at the world we live in today, and we realize the way God made things is not the way they are now. Things are not the way God intended them to be. What happened? Sin happened. We only have to look back to Genesis again for the answer. Adam and Eve sinned when they gave in to the temptation presented them by Satan to eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, that which God had told them not to. And now, obviously, things aren't right. They're not the way they're supposed to be. They're not right the way they are. And as we learn from Genesis, this is not a new problem. It all started with Adam's sin. It's an old problem. Pastor and author Ray Stedman, now home with the Lord, wrote, Go back into recorded history to the earliest writings of men, the most ancient of history, and the amazing thing is that men were wrestling with the same moral problems then that we are wrestling with today. We have made wonderful advances in the technological application of certain physical forces to life, but have made absolutely zero progress when it comes to moral relationships. See, things are out of our control, aren't they? And that's why the writer says at the end of verse 8, at present, do you see it? Look at it. Verse 8, at present, we do not see, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. (laughs) Good thing that I recognize. Don't leave the yet out, okay? (laughs) At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So in verses 5 through 8, the writer is speaking of of man and God's purpose in creation. And it was all good. It was right. It was the way God intended it. But now in verse 9, the writer points to God's answer to the problem because things went wrong, right? Sin entered the world. Adam sinned. And since then, we've all been sinning. But now, in verse 9, the writer points to God's answer to the problem. See, it's not all bad news. It's been a pretty bleak picture, hasn't it? And it might be a bit discouraging to think, well, things aren't the way they're supposed to be. But God has the answer. Praise God. In verse 9, the writer points to God's answer to the problem. At present, things aren't as God intended them. We do not see everything in subjection to mankind, but God has an answer to the problem of man's sin. God fixes the moral problem. Look at verse 9. But we see him. Who's that? The writer doesn't leave us wondering for very long. Keep reading. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely, Jesus. Namely, Jesus. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that, by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. You see, When you realize things aren't as they should be, what do you do? Well, most of us begin to look for help somewhere, don't we? What do you do when your car breaks down? Well, some of you are mechanics, and so you haul it back to your house and you fix it, right? If you're like me, you try to fix it, and then you call a mechanic, right? Or if you're like my family, I think I'm, I'm the most uh, computer literate person in my extended family because it seems like my brothers and my, my parents and, and my in-laws, everybody calls me. Kevin, how do I fix my computer? And I'm happy to help, but when my car breaks down, I can only do a few things, right? So what do I do? I call somebody for help. What do you do when you need help? You call somebody for help, it's it's okay, (laughs) right? And when you look around at the world that we live in and you realize things are not right, things are not the way they should be, what do you begin to do? Well, the world is looking for help. You realize that? And there are a lot of people peddling help, like, you know, use this, buy this, know this, learn this, go here, do that. This is how you find the answers to your problems, right? And none of them pointing to Jesus, the one real answer. The writer of Hebrews knows we need help. And he knows that mankind is looking and searching anywhere and everywhere and very often in all the wrong places. So by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer is telling us that God gives that help in Jesus Christ. Just in case you're looking in all the wrong places, the writer of Hebrews says, stop looking everywhere else and look to Jesus. We see him. Jesus is the only place to look for help. Just think about it. When you read God's Word, what do you learn about how God intends for you and me to deal with sin in our own lives? Is it in our own power, or is it in humbling ourselves before the finished work of Christ, before Jesus Christ in faith, because we know that He finished the work of conquering sin and death and hell when He was crucified on the cross, and He rose from the grave, right? And so we're taught by God's Word, look to Jesus and live. Have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. (laughs) How does God intend for you and me to deal with the sin in our own lives? Confess your sin. Admit that you're a sinner and believe in Jesus, and he forgives your sin. Why? Because he paid the price for your sins. He tasted death for everyone. How does God intend for us to face the difficulties that we face in this world? Because you understand that because things are not right as they are, simply having faith in Jesus does not remove the problems, does it? But Jesus is the answer to those problems. So, so the Lord's there to help us in the midst of the problems. He doesn't snatch us out of the problems. He doesn't snatch the problems away from us but he helps us in the midst of the problems. How does God intend for us to face the difficulties that we face in this sinful world? Through faith in Christ, we obey God's word. And God helps us with the wisdom of his word to face the problems that we we see and experience. How does God intend for his children to face opposition to the way that they live when the way that they live is in obedience to God's word? And you do realize that sooner or later you will be opposed by the world that we live in because when I say the world and when God's word speaks of the world, it's talking about anything and everything that is opposed to God and God's right way, God's honorable way, God's truth. And so you realize that when you humble yourself before God's word and you go out into this world that is opposed to everything that is right according to God, when you live in obedience to God's word, you will face opposition sooner or later. And how does God intend for you to face opposition to the way that you live? And, and we're living in a culture that is becoming more and more aggressive and hard toward a biblical approach to life, toward a God-honoring approach to life. We're living in a culture that is, that is more and more becoming Curse that which is right and glorify that which is sinful. And so we're living in a culture that when you start obeying God's word, the world is going to say, you're a sinner. You're wrong. That's that's a wrong thing to do to say That say to say that homosexuality is sin. Right? I mean, you're starting to hear that in the world, right? If you're not, where have you been for the last 20 years, right? Who are you to say that, that that drugs will ruin your life? You know that, that substance abuse will 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 ruin your life. We hear it. It's a sad thing when I hear our president say that things like marijuana are no different than drinking. And I just have to say I agree because drinking will ruin your life. Okay. Drinking to excess, allowing alcohol to control your life will ruin your life and ruin the lives of of those around you. Some of you know this, right? When in a culture, when you take God's word and you begin to live by the truth of God's word, you're going to find that you're going to get pushed back. How does God intend for you to live in a culture that says righteousness is wrong and sin is right? And please don't think that just because I named a couple of things, those are the only things that are a problem, right? We have a lot of problems in this culture, right? A lot of things that God's Word addresses. There's lust, right? There's the sin of, of the way we think, the way we can think in our, in our minds, the way that we think about people and, and the way that we speak about people that that too can dishonor God and is a great and grievous sin and can ruin the lives of of those who should be honoring Christ. How does God intend for His children to face opposition to the way that they live when the way that they live is ordered by the Word of God? Through faith in Christ, because we see Him. Through faith, we see Him. And we know that that God the Spirit has taken up residence in us to help us live by faith. In fact, tonight we're going to come back, we're going to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. I encourage you to come back and, and let's let's dig into God's Word about what the Bible says about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in God's people. How does God expect His children to deal with opposition to the way that they live when the way that they live is is ordered by the Word of God because you're submitting to God's Word by faith. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, by obedience to the Word, you look to Him because you see Him by faith. You see, the writer of Hebrews says, But we see Him. Now we see Jesus. How do we see Him? By faith. Sounds strange if you're an unbeliever, but if you know Christ, it's not strange. (laughs) If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, he makes himself known in your heart. And we have to admit as believers that's a supernatural work. Praise God, he makes himself known to those who put their trust in him. So the so the question you might have is well how do I know? Well you you have to have faith first. You have to have faith that Jesus Christ accomplished for you what you could not accomplish for yourself. He went to Calvary and was punished for your sins. You put your faith in Christ, and then you'll see Him. He'll save you. He'll forgive you. He'll redeem you and make you His own. You will be a co-heir with Christ because He took the punishment for your sins, and you will see Him by faith not literally, and I'm not talking about seeing an image of Jesus, but your heart will tell you. You will see Jesus. We see him. Now we see Jesus by faith. Think of it, the first Adam sinned and ruined what God had intended for mankind. But we see him. We see Jesus by faith. We know Jesus is the second Adam, right? And really, that's all of the Bible. If you think about the way God's Word instructs us, it's really about two, two people, Adam and Jesus. Why? Because sin started with Adam and Jesus came to fix the problem, came to solve our problem of sin. We see him by faith. We see Jesus, the second Adam, who was sent by God to undo the damage done by the first Adam. Praise God. And Jesus is the only one who could do this. You realize this, right? This is one more reminder why Jesus is better than the angels. He's the only one who could become a man, taking on human flesh, living a sinless life, and then suffering and dying for our sins. That's why the writer says in verse 9 that we see him who for, look at it, in verse 9, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Now, how is it that Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels? By taking on flesh, right? By taking on humanity. It was by taking on humanity, flesh and blood, so that he could die for our sins. This is why Jesus is crowned with glory and honor, even though this world is still sinful and is not fully subjected to his righteous reign But because by the grace of God he tasted death for everyone, he is crowned with glory and honor. It says here that Jesus tasted death, but it's not like he just tried a little bit of it. It's not like when you go to a buffet and you think, I'm not sure what that is, so I'll just take a little. I'm really glad that I only tried a little bit of calamari the first time. It's like, what is this? Unfortunately, remember when I was in the Marines many, many years ago in, in the southern states, we were taken to an Army base, I think it was in Georgia, to use their rifle range, and we went through the Army chow hall, and I said, I'll take some of that. Didn't know what it was. Slopped a big old pilot on there, and I sat down, and it said chitlins. I took a bite and as soon as i took a bite i knew what it was and i was like i am not eating that i am not eating that i only needed a little bit right that is not that is not what this passage means okay when it says that jesus tasted death it means that he fully experienced he got the full experience of death it is not like he was just trying a little sample it means he fully experienced it, and it says that he fully experienced the suffering and shame of death for everyone. Now, when you see that he did that for everyone, you think, well, does that mean that everybody's going to be saved? If you know God's word, you know that that's not true. It is not true that everyone will be saved simply because Jesus tasted death for everyone. Jesus says, in fact, of salvation from sins in Matthew 7. Listen to verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Sadly, sadly, there will be many who are not saved. So when the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus tasted death for everyone, what it means is that Jesus' death and resurrection is completely sufficient to save all those who put their faith in Christ. Completely sufficient. All who look to Jesus with faith in Him will be saved. Because His death satisfies God's judgment for their sins. His death is completely sufficient to save all who put their faith in Him. Are things the way they're supposed to be in this world? Absolutely not. But God tells you, and God tells me today, to look to His Son in faith. We see Him. We see Jesus. Look to His Son and live. Look to Jesus Christ in faith and live. Have you done that? Have you done that? Have you looked at Jesus in faith? Have you believed in Jesus Christ? If you have, you have been forgiven your sins. Praise God. And you have been sent the Holy Spirit to indwell you and help you as you read and obey God's word. Praise God. You see, God graciously sent his Son to make everything right again. And even though we still don't see everything the way God ultimately intends it, we need to remember that God is still in control. And all things are being sustained by the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, says Philippians 2.10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And because of this, all who trust in Jesus will reign with him. All who put their faith in Jesus Christ will reign with Christ. Why? Because we are co-heirs with Christ. The answer to the world's problem, and the world has one major problem, and it's sin. The answer to the world's problem is Jesus and faith in him. Have you trusted in him? You realize you can do that right where you sit today. Tell God in prayer, I believe in your son. I believe in Jesus. I put my faith in him. I confess that I'm a sinner. And what will God do? Through Christ, he saves you. Praise God. Have you trusted in him? Don't delay. And believer, if you put your faith in Christ, are you living by obedient faith daily because you see Jesus you know that Jesus is at work in you through the work of the holy spirit and by the power of his word and you realize that that salvation for for your sins was accomplished at Calvary and yet you aren't you aren't fully saved yet in 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 so many words so to speak right Because you're still here on this fallen earth. You're thinking, well, wait, I'm not in eternity with Christ yet. That eternal hope is yours. That eternal promise is yours, praise God, right? You are saved eternally, even though you live in this fallen world. So look to Jesus every day. It's not like you need to look to Him to keep you saved. He keeps you. He saves you. Through faith in Christ, that is finished but daily you need to look to Christ. Because through faith, as you take in the truths of God's Word, as you walk in obedience to God's Word, God will encourage your heart and He will show you Christ. You will see Him as you serve Him, as you honor Him, as you obey Him, as you seek to make Him known with your life and with your witness. Are you living by obedient faith daily because you see him, you see Jesus. Let's pray. Our precious Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can look to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And we praise you that just as we see in our passage today, we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because because He tasted death for everyone, because of the suffering of death, so that by Your grace, God, He might taste death for everyone. Lord, I pray, help us. Will you help your children, Lord, to see Jesus every day, to realize that the Lord Jesus is at work in us, helping us to grow in likeness to him, helping us to grow in obedience to your word, helping us to honor and obey you, though we may be opposed in this world because we see Christ and we know that the price was paid for our sins, and that is finished, and we're his. And we look forward to that eternal reign with Christ because we are co-heirs with Christ, and we anticipate that day when, when you call us home. But until then, Lord, help us to live by faith. Help us to honor and glorify you in this world in which we live so that those around us might find the narrow gate and be saved. Oh, God, help us to obey you and honor and glorify you with our lives and, and give us opportunities that we might testify of your goodness to us and tell others of, of your good word, your glorious truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, I pray you know our hearts. You know the situation of each person here. And if there are unbelievers in our midst, you know it. And we thank you that you brought them here today. And we pray, God, that you would open their hearts and minds and eyes, their spiritual eyes, to see and hear and believe in Jesus Christ and be saved today. That they might see Jesus every day and live for him and live to glorify him and make him known. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.